Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us gathered here today. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles or on your devices uh, to the New Testament writing of 2 Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be around verse 16. And while you're turning in your Bibles, I want to welcome those who are worshiping with us, the rest of our church family in the Family Life Center, and invite you into this study and encourage you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices um, or to the place where you have hidden his word in your heart. <laughs> to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we begin reading in 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away and, and see everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. And as we pray this morning, I, I want to simply call our collective uh, soul to be attentive to the events of this past week. Now is the moment when we bring burdens before the Lord together as a body. This is the moment when we pray about uh, where we hope and where we hurt. This is the, the moment in worship where together as one body we point to the broken places in this world and it, it, I don't have to inform you of the brokenness we've experienced this week as we are still reflecting upon the absolute um, chaos and tragedy and horror that was the shooting in Las Vegas uh, last uh, six days ago, six, seven days ago now. And as we pray, many of you are aware you read some reflections that I put together in our blog and our, our church newsletter, and I referred you there to kind of frame some thinking about 
about these events. But here in this moment of prayer, how do you pray? What words do you offer when words fail? It's in moments like this one right now, weeks like this one right now, when we lean upon the history of our faith more than anything else. Sisters and brothers in the Jewish tradition have handed us, through the Hebrew Bible, have handed us a way forward when the suffering is so great that we don't know what words to use. In the Old Testament, we hear the prayers of lament. We, we even have an entire writing in the Old Testament called the Book of Lamentations where human beings are given permission before God to simply groan, to, to weep, to cry out, to ask two very critical human questions. Why and how long, O oh Lord? And the first one rarely has an answer, does it? The first one, if we attempt to answer it quickly, the answers we offer are trite, they are small, they are petty, and they make an unbelieving world believe even less. Sometimes the why is a mystery we can't put our arms around. But in the Old Testament, the people are given permission by God to pray these two prayers, why and how long Oh Lord. And that's what we do. But our ancient sisters and brothers in the Hebrew tradition and in the Jewish faith understood that when they prayed those two prayers, why and how long, oh Lord, regardless of what the suffering was, whether it was personal in someone's family or it was corporate in the midst of an entire nation, they understood that when God gave them permission to pray those two prayers, they also put themselves in the position to be asked the same question by God. Why? And how long, O oh humans? I think sometimes the most profound thing that we can do as believers in Christ when we worship is to sit together in silence and Pulling from the wisdom of Romans chapter 8, we acknowledge that when we have no words, the Spirit intercedes with words that, with groans that are too deep for words. And I just want to call us for a moment to groan. To not pretend to have quick and easy answers, but to put ourselves before the presence of the Almighty who has some questions to ask us today. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh people? Would you go with me now before the throne in prayer? Good and loving God, we have already sung this morning about the victory that we have in you. And because of that extraordinary good news, it, it gives us a reason to wake up in the morning and, and a reason to hope. And we stand and we sing and we lift up our celebration that we have been loved and redeemed and forgiven and, and brought close by you. And because we have been brought close by you, we take advantage of the permission that you give us to cry out a while. 
Will you listen, Lord, in this silence to the aching groans of our hearts? We lay our hearts before you and we surrender before you all that is in us and all that is not in us. We surrender all of those moments this past week when we have lived up to our name as followers of Jesus and we surrender before you all of those moments when we have utterly abandoned our identity and lived like we have never met you. Forgive us. And in this hour and in this time of study, we pray that your spirit would so be near to us that we are transformed by your presence. Not seeking only to be comforted, but seeking to be changed so that our presence in this world is a comfort to those who suffer. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all life, we all pray. Timothy Paul Johnson, or Jones, Timothy Paul Jones, tells the story about the adoption of his eight-year-old daughter. She was now the middle child of their family, but he learned when he adopted her that another family had already adopted her previously. I mean, this couple that adopted her previously had all the best intentions and they welcomed her into their family. But over the course of two years, no matter what they tried or how hard they tried, they couldn't seem to integrate her into the family of their biological children. And it was one struggle after the next. And because of any number of reasons, after two years, they dissolved the adoption and gave her back up. And Jones came into her life when she was eight and adopted her. And he learned that in that short amount of time when she was with this other family, the family would go on family vacations. They would go to Disney World. But every time they would go to Disney World, they would take their biological children but leave her with a family friend. And so when they came back, she saw all the pictures of the Magic Kingdom. She heard all the stories about all the rides and the larger-than-life characters and the great snacks. But she always was remaining on the outside of that, that glorious gate that says Magic Kingdom, looking in. So they determined, Jones did, that the next family vacation they would take would be to Disney World. And so they planned it. They put it on the calendar. They told her and her siblings all about it. But the strangest thing began to happen about a month and a half before the trip. She started behaving really badly. I mean, no matter what they did, she, she, she started to act out. She, she would tell lies about her siblings. She would take things that didn't belong to her. She, she would storm in and out of doors and, and, and lie. She would lie and they couldn't figure it out. As it got closer to the vacation, 
the father brought her in and sat her on his lap and, and, and began to talk to her. And she said, I know what you're going to say. You're not taking me, are you? And then it began to make sense. It began to come together for the father. And the father said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. What you've done is wrong and you're going to be punished for it. But we're going to Disney World as a family. You're part of this family, aren't you? And to which she responded, shrugs of the shoulders. And, you're part of this family and you're going to Disney World with us. Well, time got closer for the departure, and even as it got closer, that news didn't make it any better. She even behaved more badly. She behaved worse as the closer they got to vacation until they finally got there. They went into the park, this land of overpriced tickets and overpriced snacks and lines so long it just makes you want to put an ice pick in your eye. It just, yo. Oh. And there they were at the end of their long first day, and they go back to their hotel, and she, she's exhausted in all the best ways. She had felt the magic, right? So she curled up in bed, and he kneels beside her in bed to say prayers, and he says to her, how was your first day at Disney World? And this is what she said. We really came. And it wasn't because I was good, but because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good, but because I'm yours. The church of Jesus Christ is intended to be a gathering of imperfect people with unfinished stories in which any human being can belong not because we are good, but because we are his. And last week we began this conversation that we're calling Be. We began a conversation by saying that for about 500 years now, you and I have been living in this kind of way of belonging, this way of doing church, and it looks a little something like this. Believe, behave, belong. And it works a little something like this. If you believe the right things and you learn to behave the right way, well, then maybe you can belong to us. And we don't name it that way. We may not have been able to recognize or confess it that way, but we live in that way in which you almost have to earn your way in in some moments. But to live fully and freely as the body of Christ in the 21st century and beyond it is time, as Diana Butler Bass suggested and, and we talked about last week, it is time for the church to reclaim its original design, that we flip the paradigm around. It's not believe, behave, and then belong. It's belong. And out of your belonging, learn to behave. And out of that behaving, we embrace belief like we never could have without it. And as good as that sounds, as, as endearing or, or inviting as that may be to any of us who are seeking to belong to the Lord and belong to the community, the, the beauty of that is plain and simple. You can belong, period, end of discussion. But even as good as that news is, it's possible that there are some in, in, in this church and in churches all around who feel 
like the little girl standing at the gate on the outside of the magic kingdom looking in because you hear all this great news about the the church being this community of belonging, a beloved community in which we all belong and we can all become something and yet for some reason you have always felt as if you're a little bit in and a little bit out and you're just not sure if you're really a part of it. So I want to talk to you today. I want to talk and address that experience in a message that I simply want to call Be Found, Be Forgiven, Be Free. Be Found, Be Forgiven, Be Free. And we start like this. In the beginning, when this whole movement began, this way of Jesus... We were a beloved community of radical inclusion. We were a beloved community of radical inclusion. There was no one who was not welcome in the company of Jesus. Our Lord welcomed anyone, whether their lives were cleaned up first or not. Can I get you just for a moment to think about even the original 12 who he gathered around the table? What a cast of characters that was. Jesus deliberately went to Simon the Zealot and asked him to be a part of this movement. Simon the Zealot, who was a part of a political party whose number one objective was to overthrow the government. Their number one objective was to take up arms and and take down the empire of Rome who had been oppressing them. That's Simon the Zealot. But the beauty of this is that Jesus welcomed him to the table and Simon takes a piece of bread and breaks it and hands it over to Matthew, the tax collector, who, by the way, was on the payroll of the very empire that Simon was attempting to overturn. And Jesus said, yeah, this is a good idea. Jesus not only welcomed the zealot and the tax collector at the same table, he also welcomed Luke, the doctor, and Peter, the fisherman. Because in the mind of Jesus, vocational identity or hierarchy didn't matter at all. Jesus also welcomed to that table introverts and extroverts. I mean, he introduced Thaddeus and Nathaniel. Tell me what you know about Thaddeus. Not much? Yeah, me me either. Because not much is said about Thaddeus. In fact, is it because that he, and, and really Nathaniel as well, we know how Nathaniel came onto the scene, but we don't know much about what he did except for some traditional stories that came long after. But Thaddeus and Nathaniel, is it possible that we don't know about them because they didn't make that much of a splash? That they were quiet, unassuming, didn't make it all about them? Well, guess what? Simon, I mean, uh, Thaddeus and Nathaniel are at the bread and cup, and they hand this cup over across the table to, uh, to James and John, who have a nickname. They're so loud and boisterous, they're so in the middle of the room. They are so much about themselves that their nickname was Sons of Thunder. And here is Jesus welcoming both the introvert and the extrovert, welcoming the wallflower and the party animal at the same table. There is no one who was not welcome with Jesus. 
He welcomed men and women, educated and uneducated, young and old. He ate supper with sinners and prostitutes. And in eating supper with the sinners and prostitutes, he welcomed upon himself all the rumors and innuendos that came along with doing that. Because Jesus counted it worth the risk in order to make sure that even the sinner and the prostitute were welcome and that they belonged. And Jesus also knew that it wasn't the job of, our, of, of people to change the hearts and minds of people because we can't do that. Jesus understood that that is only God's job and that our job is to create a safe space in which transformation can take place. Do you know that the first two centuries of this whole movement, this, the first two centuries of the, the way of Jesus, we were known primarily because of how we welcomed one another, for radical hospitality. I mean, in fact, there was even a saying in the streets of Rome that Roman citizens would say about us, about our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith. They would say, look at the Christians, how they love one another. And the only litmus test for belonging in the first century, second century church was not, hey, what do you believe and how well do you behave? The only litmus test is, are you hungry? Because we've got some bread. Are you thirsty? We have wine and you can have some. Are you broken? Alone, are you Afraid? Are you rejected? Are you totally by yourself in this life? Because you're safe here while God works on all of us. Is that why? In the passage that we read just a moment ago, we come to chapter 5, verse 16. Is that why we hear these words? From now on, says Paul, we regard no one from a human point of view. Paul understood that when you really encounter Jesus Christ, when you really are transformed in the mind and in the heart, if, if your life is actually changed because you've met this man, then it changes how you see other people. It changes how you see everything. You can't recognize others by the same labels that you used to recognize them by. In fact, it may be that you and I are part of groups or organizations where those labels and, and those tags matter, but in the body of Christ, they don't. There may be organizations in which we are involved where, where it matters if you're uh, male or female, if you're black or white or brown, if you are wealthy or impoverished, if you are educated or not educated, if you're old or, or young, if you're American or not American, Republican or Democrat, those labels matter in some places. Not here. Not here. Because if we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the only thing that we see when we see one another is the value of a human being for whom Jesus was willing to, to suffer and to bleed and to die. So when I see you, I can't see those. Well, I can. I can see those labels and do. Just like you. I mean, I can see those labels right away. But I don't want to. Do you want to? 
Because it's very natural for you and for me to see with the eyes of human beings. But Paul says we no longer are called to look at one another like other human beings look at one another. So that when we see one another, the only thing we see is the value of a human being for whom Jesus Christ was willing to die. It means I can't despise you. I can't hate you. I mean, I can. But if I truly look at you long enough to recognize the one for whom he died then what I see is my sister and my brother who belong to me, who belong to me. Maybe this is also why he says in chapter 5, verse 17, these words, it's a powerful image. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation Everything old has passed away, and see, everything has become new. Everything. It's not just, hey, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. It doesn't just mean that everything you used to do has been forgiven. It doesn't just mean that everything that was in your past is now behind you. That's all very true. But that statement is even broader and more magnificent than just being about you. That statement says, if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation, a new reality for our existence. There is a new way of existing in this world. And when Paul says a new creation, he is deliberately, he's doing something. He's he's messing with you. Paul is messing with you when you read that. Because he knows that as soon as you hear the word creation, you're going to think about Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, those original stories of creation where God created all the universe, right? So Paul is attempting to trigger your theological imagination, and he says, think about creation. Do you remember those stories? The original beloved community. Hey, in our home, um, sometimes... Uh, Nathan will mess with Jackson a little bit because Nathan's born first, Jackson's born second. Sometimes it just happens to be that Laura and I are talking to Nathan about something. We're on the couch looking at pictures or watching TV or doing a thing, and Jackson comes into the room. Hey, what are y'all doing? And Nathan says, oh, just hanging out as the original family. <laughs> kind of you know, messing with it. The orig- Creation is the original beloved community of radical inclusion because in the beginning during the creation there was nothing but Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect communion with one another, the Trinity. And out of that beloved community of God's own Godness births forth a world of community, a garden, Eden. And in Eden there is this image and it's beautiful, these images in which God creates something and says that it's good. You, you remember this, right? God creates night and day and says that's good. Sky and sea and says that's good. God creates land and vegetation. Oh, that's good. He creates the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars to rule by night and says that's good. And God continues by creating birds to be in the air and fish to be in the sea. And that's good too. And animals all over the planet and that's good. But then he comes to what we call the culminating moment of the created uh, event, the creation event, at least according to chapter 1. The creation of the human being. And after all these things have been created and God has declared each of them good, 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 good. There's one thing that God declares very good. It's the creation of the human being. But of all the things 
that God declares good and very good, there is one thing and one thing only that in creation God declares not good. And it is that we were alone. In chapter 2 we hear these words. It is not good that the human should be alone. So he made some more. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians, what we're reading today, reaches back and grabs a hold of the symbols and the images and the stories of the first creation and tugs them forward and says, if you really want to know the mystery of what's going on in Christ, well, in Christ there is a new creation. The church is intended to be the new Eden a beloved community of radical inclusion which, in which it's, it's all very good, but the only thing not good is that you, you are, you're alone. So the church is intended to be the Eden in which you belong. And, and still, as good as that is, as, as good as that good news is, there are still those who see the Eden of this the church I'm talking about, the community, they see, okay, I believe it. That sounds great on paper. It kind of rolls off the tongue in a sermon, but I still find myself on the outside looking in, and I get that because it's entirely possible to still, bless you, feel like you're on the outside looking in. And you know why? For the same reasons our first parents did. They were members of that beloved community. They were, they were belonging before they were even aware that they were belonging. And yet chapter 3 comes and they eat fruit from a tree they should not have taken. And there enters into their life shame and guilt. Can I recommend as your pastor and friend that it may be possible that some of us remain on the outside of that garden, looking in, waiting at the gate while others are on the rides and eating the Mickey Mouse ice creams. <laughs> that as much as we long to be in this beloved community, we are on the outside sometimes, partially because of shame and guilt. There is a difference between shame and guilt. Now think of it this way. Guilt really describes something that we've done. Fruit. Wrong tree. That's not a, something we've done. But shame represents something that we are. Think of it this way. Guilt says, I have done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, um, I've, I've made a mistake and I, I must confess it in order to get it off my chest. That's guilt. I've done some, I blew it and I've done something wrong. I've got to say it to get it off my chest. That's guilt. But shame is, well, I am a mistake and I have to hide it so that no one will find out. Can I suggest that it's possible that some, even in this beloved community, find themselves with one foot in and one foot out because of shame? 
And if you understand shame, you understand it's a big spectrum. And we can experience shame on a, a wide range of levels. For some, it's just a, a light kind of embarrassment. Maybe you don't like the sound of your voice or how your hair parts in the wrong direction. There's, on one level, there's just some shame about things you can't control. But on the other end of that spectrum is some serious self-hate in which you despise how you're made and how you're wired and how you're put together. And that shame is carried around like an anchor around your neck most of the time. And sometimes it, it hides itself. It plays out in a variety of ways. Some folks who deal with shame for any number of reasons. Listen, if you're dealing with shame, you need to know that out of respect for how you got where you are, there are no quick and easy answers to how you got there or how you get out. Only hope for a way toward the exit, right? But we camouflage our our shame in a number of ways. Some folks hide their shame about who they are and what they hate about themselves by never showing up. I won't be involved in this thing. I'll never go to the party. I won't join a Sunday school class. I'm just gonna, if I come to church, I'll kind of slip in late, slip out early so no one really sees me or can have a chance to know me. Sometimes we, we hide our shame by disappearing. Other times, we hide our shame through addiction or depression or aggression Think of a bully that you know. Sometimes bullies are bullies because they're camouflaging a shame that they carry around with them. And the Bible speaks about the experience of shame and how it can keep you sometimes on the outside of the kingdom looking in, on the outside of the garden longing to be in, but because of how you hate part of who you are, You live isolated. In Luke's gospel, we hear a phenomenal story. We're not going to read it, but I want you to write it down so you can read it later. It's in Luke chapter 13. There's this woman, and she has an issue with her back. Do you remember this story? And she goes through life, and for 18 years, she's been bent over. She can't stand up straight. We don't know what the problem was if she if it was scoliosis or spina bifida or she had an injury that never healed. But all we know is that she went around life bent over, which I think is the most provocative image I want you to think about here in worship, that she's bent with her face to the ground, never able to look up and see someone in the eye, never able to look up and really see herself. But she had in her very being, without her own control, beyond her ability to change it, she had a contorted posture and image. And because of it, she was always on the outside looking in. But Jesus one day sees her. And it's on the Sabbath. And you don't do some things on the Sabbath when it comes to believe, behave, belong. Well, you don't behave that way. You don't, you don't work on the Sabbath. You especially don't heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus says there are some things more important than the rules. And he sees her and goes to her and pulls her in the middle of the room, in the middle of the consciousness of the crowd, and puts his hands on her and heals her. Why? Because he saw past her shame to a dignity that was worth bringing to the center of the room. Because it's only when you are brought in proximity to Christ that you can be healed of the very things that cause you shame. 
There's another story, and it's in Mark's gospel. It's similar, but very different issues, very different people. There's a woman who has a condition that she can't heal. It's a hemorrhage, a menstrual hemorrhage that just will not cease. And beyond the, the, the typical kind of uh, physical struggles that that would bring, uh, the, uh, being anemic and, and, and so forth, and all of the complications that would bring to her physically, in the first century, it meant complete ost- being ostracized, com- complete isolation, because they interpreted this flow of blood, this unceasing hemorrhage, as some kind of sin, a contagion that needed to be rejected. She couldn't go to worship. She couldn't come to public gatherings. She couldn't be touched, hugged. And Jesus is moving in an entourage by her, and here she is filled with shame over who she is, not because of what she's done, but because of who she is. And she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. He feels some power leave him, and he stops the parade and says, hang on a minute, hang on. Do you see her? Her faith is making her well. So she is brought to the center of his attention and the attention of everyone there because she belonged. And I just want to say something to you if, if you are dealing with shame and that shame has kept you on the outside looking in for a good part of your life. And I want you to look right at the screen because whether you're in this room or the next room, I want you to see me looking at you and saying to you whatever it is that you hate about you Whatever it is that has caused you to be crippled and and left paralyzed because uh, you despise a part of who you are. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God knit you together in your mother's womb, God did not make a mistake. And all of the parts of you that you hate, that you despise, that you just wish would disappear or perhaps were never born, those parts of you that you even harm because you despise them, they are welcome here. All of your imperfection and all of your unfinished story is welcome here because it's in the company of Jesus that they begin to not matter anymore. It's in the company of Jesus where they are healed. Somebody, somewhere, say amen. Amen. It may not be that you deal with shame. It may be that you deal with guilt. And guilt is another animal altogether. Guilt can keep us on the outside of the garden looking in because we still have the taste of the fruit in our mouths. And we know the difference between shame and guilt. But even so, there are a couple of kinds of guilt. Sometimes there is false guilt. And false guilt is wearing this burden around that you you, you can't change. It's something maybe you didn't do, or maybe you did do it, but you can't go back and change it. So you're carrying this this burden, and it, it, it cripples you like Karen Lang. Karen Lang tells about tucking her nine year old boy into bed one night. She tucked him into bed and and, and he said, can you get in bed with me and, and, and read me a book like you used to? Remember how you... And she wanted to, but she was exhausted. I mean, she was a working mom. She was just exhausted. She just really wanted to go to bed. That's all she wanted to tuck him in and go to bed because tomorrow it all starts over again. And she said, no, not tonight, baby. 
not tonight. Uh, we'll, we'll, do it. we'll do that tomorrow. She says that is the first thing she thought about the next afternoon when he was struck by a car and killed. And that for years afterwards, she could not shake this guilt of having not read a book to him the night before he died. Now see, on a logical scale, that's not reasonable, is it, for her to feel that weight. But false guilt is not reasonable. It, it makes you carry around an anchor through the rest of your life. E even if you understand that you, you, you can't be all things to all people. She began to regret everything she hadn't said, everything she hadn't done, kicking herself, just vexed by false guilt. And some gather in the beloved community, and yet you, you, you keep one foot in, one foot out, because you, you're vexed by some kind of false guilt of something that has happened or that you did, and you can't change it. But coming to the center of the beloved community is important because it's here that you hear the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's false guilt, but some, well, we stay on the outside because of real guilt. I mean, true guilt, good guilt. Sometimes guilt, my friends, is our best friend. Sometimes guilt is what saves our hides. Because guilt is that disturbance on the inside that says, this is not right. What you've done crossed the boundary. Or if you haven't done it yet, guilt is what says, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. You're about to be somebody that you're not. See, guilt is a gift from God. Because sometimes it's the, it's the way that the Holy Spirit speaks to the gut and says, this is not who you are. Stop. It's like a flashing indicator light on our, on our car. It's like the check engine light, right? It flashes on and off, and, and you can pull over and have somebody look under the hood and fix it, or you can like put a piece of tape over it and just not... Not look at it, ignore it. Eat. But if you do, you keep driving on to your destruction, right? Are you carrying some guilt because of something that you've done and you know it was wrong? In the church, we call that sin. Got a word for it. But do you know that you've blown it? And, and is it possible that in blowing it, you have sentenced yourself to a lifetime of standing outside the garden while everybody else gets to ride. If that's the case, I want you to dial in here for a moment. The whole point of the Jesus way, the whole point of his willingness to suffer and bleed and die upon the cross is to remove from you that sentence. You have been made free and are forgiven, not because you found out a way to make up for it, but because he did. 
In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we hear these words, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we come to a place where we say, Lord, I have blown it, and it breaks my heart, and, and I'm sick in my stomach about it, and that I, I don't want to live this way anymore because I've not only abandoned you, but I've abandoned my identity as one who loves you, and I'm sorry I am sorry and I, I, I need your forgiveness. When we pray that sincerely, the beauty of the good news is that we're forgiven. That you don't have to carry that anchor of weight and sin and shame anymore. Do you remember when you were children and you learned John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You don't have to perish, but but you will have everlasting life. And as beautiful as John 3.16 is, that's not my favorite. My favorite is the one that follows it. For God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world, but that through him the world may be saved. This is why in Romans chapter 8 we can hear these words of promise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're free. You are free. If you confess and lay it before Christ and repent of your sins, you are free. And do you know where that sin and that guilt goes? Well, according to the psalmist, this is what we read. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions. Now that's free. He whom the Son has set free shall be free indeed. Maybe this is why this text that we're studying earlier ends with this magnificent verse in verse 21. For our sake, he made him sin to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the cross of Jesus Christ, he took upon your shame and your false guilt and your true, good, healthy guilt upon himself. As it was nailed to the tree, you have been set free from it forever. So that we become the righteousness of God. That means we become the right things of God. Everything that is good and right and beautiful and noble and holy about God can be seen in your life. Not because we're good, but because we're his. I just want to give you one more image and then I promise you can have lunch sometime today. But I'll stay until the evening if you want to talk about freedom. So a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were in Greece. I told you that. I'm going to save you the slideshow. You can come to my house and we'll do that. But I told you that we visited the Acropolis and on top of the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the, the, the temple to Athena. But on the corner... Of the Acropolis, there is another temple, a temple to the goddess Nike. Here's a picture. A temple to the goddess Nike. Nike was the goddess of victory. It's where we get our word Nike, right? Nike, victory. But in the ancient world, 
The goddess Nike was portrayed as having wings. Here's a picture of her. Wings upon the goddess Victory because Victory has wings. And sometimes if you see that on a Nike ad, you're going to think, oh, Nike, shoes, wings, very fast. But it's not about being fast. According to the ancient Greeks, it's about Victory being fleeting. Like in the Olympics, you may win and Victory may be yours one day, but tomorrow it can fly away. Well, the Apostle Paul, who saw that, then pins to the Romans his letter. And in the eighth chapter of his letter to the the Romans, he coins a brand new phrase in Greek. Hupo nike. For in Christ you have been made hupo nike, hyper nike, more than conquerors. Through him who loves you, in other words, the victory that is yours, the victory we just sang a little while ago about is a victory that once you have it, it never flies away. When you are set free from shame, you are set free for good. When you are set free from guilt, you are set free from good or from from guilt. He whom the Son has set free is free indeed. What will you do about that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just pause for a moment to just marvel at the the invitation you give us to belong to something so beautiful that that you have sacrificed your life in order to establish a beloved community of, of radical inclusion that we are all welcome even if our, our lives are imperfect and our stories are unfinished. And show us this day how you can even remove the stain of sin and shame and guilt from anyone. And show us what it looks like to receive a victory that never flees. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray.